0: Listen to the words that the Lord left for us as recorded by the Apostle Paul in the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 1. 1 Corinthians, chapter 1, that's right before 2 Corinthians, verses 10 through 17. This is also found on page number 952 of your Pew Bible. Listen to the tone that Paul uses when he's writing this. He says, "'I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ,' that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people, of all people, that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or (laughs) I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Hmm. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may see that you were no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanas, but beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Please be seated.
1: My name is Mark Bates, by the way. I'm one of the pastors here. Thank you for coming. Uh, yesterday, you know, as I was kind of reviewing sermon and different things and looking at the weather forecast, I said, <laughs> I'm reminded of a, of a Beatles song, you know, all the lonely people, you know, Father McKenzie preaching a sermon that no one will hear. Uh, I wondered if anyone would show up, but uh, thanks for coming. Uh, Good to have you here. And as we continue our study of 1 uh, Corinthians. Uh, After the last presidential election, uh, about a month after, I was talking to a couple in the church and they were uh, just very sad because they said their children were not coming home for Thanksgiving because the parents had voted for Donald Trump. A little while later, I was talking to another couple in our church and they were saying that they didn't want to go home to their family gathering because they were the only ones in their families who did not vote for Donald Trump. And it reflects something of what 's going on in our in our society. We are highly, highly polarized. I was at a, a meeting this week when a, a gentleman reminded us that it hasn 't always been this way i, I didn 't know this, but apparently uh, John F. Kennedy and Richard Nixon used to play golf together. Can you imagine Bernie and Donald teeing it up I mean I would love to be there for that, but uh, uh, you know, it's, just, it's unthinkable to us. But as he's sharing that about uh, Kennedy and Nixon playing golf together, I'm sitting next to an African-American pastor, who of course would not have even been allowed on that golf course. Uh, so the good old days weren't actually all that good for all of us. Some people were clearly excluded, and our country was, well, the divisions were maybe even worse, uh, just along different lines in those days. Uh, division seems to be embedded in human nature. We divide along racial lines. We divide along political lines. Uh, we divide along economic, social lines. Uh, and it's true that um, birds of a feather flock together, but, but it seems that it's deeper than that. That we divide the world into us and them between uh, those who are part of our party, those who are part of the other party, not just politically, but any other ways. And there's this uh, sense of superiority about the us where we look with disdain among the them, however the them might be defined. And into this morass of human hostility and division stands the church, And we read in Revelation that the church is comprised of people from every tribe, every tongue, every ethnic group, every race, every nationality that God is bringing together as one. Or as the Apostle Paul says uh, in many places, but notably Ephesians 2 and Galatians 3, uh, that the dividing wall of hostility between the various peoples has been torn down so that there's no longer Jew, nor Greek, nor slave, nor free, nor male, nor female, but we're all one in Christ. Well, at least that's what the Bible says it ought to be. And while that might be true of the church universal, it doesn't seem to be true of the church in any particular instance. Some have noted that Sunday mornings is the most segregated time in American life. Uh, that, uh, that we get into our each in our own little group, own little tribe, own little ethnic group, racial group, economic group, and we're separated from one another more than we are at any other place. That's not true at the grocery store. It's not true at uh, your office, uh, but it seems to be true on Sunday mornings. And even uh, ignoring those uh, racial and economic divides that separate uh, us as uh, Christians into different churches within a local church there can be great divisions. They're not always readily apparent, but they express themselves in gossip, cliques, backbiting, power groups, uh, even among churches that are highly unified. Churches that are highly unified, sometimes the reason they're so highly unified is because anyone who's not like everyone who's already there feels excluded and they've self-selected out. And so the sign that a church is highly unified may actually not be a sign of health. It may be a sign that they've actually run everybody else off. And Paul is addressing this very problem in the church, that the church uh, is to be a place where there's unity, uh, and yet often that's not the case. And it raises the question How can the church be a demonstration of God's love for all people when the church can't even love people within its own walls? How can the, the church be a demonstration of God's love for the nations when the church itself tends to divide up into its own little groups? And of course, the answer is it can't. It can't. The church cannot fulfill its mission if the church is divided. And so Paul addresses this here in the opening words to 1 Corinthians. By the way, this is not the only time you're going to notice this as he goes through the book. He's going to hit this theme over and over and over again. In fact, it is probably the most dominant theme in the book of 1 Corinthians. He's going to talk about lots of things, but he's always going to get back to this whole issue of us, them, and the divisions in the church. And so what are we to do about that? And so to understand that, we first have to look at some of the causes of disunity. We're not going to look at all of them, uh, but we also have to look at the key to unity. Uh, so as we look first at the cause of disunity, or the cause of division, and then the key to unity. So let's begin with the, the cause. So Paul is across the Aegean Sea, and uh, when he gets report from Chloe's people, and we don't know who Chloe is, and we don't know who her people were. Uh, Chloe may have been a, a, a business owner. These are people who worked for her. She may have had commerce in both places. Uh, most likely, these are not her children because children always bore the name of the father, even the Roman Empire. So these might be Chloe's employees. But Paul is uh, across the Aegean Sea. He's over in Ephesus. He gets word about these divisions going on in the church, and he's, not, he, he's disappointed, but he's not surprised. He's disappointed what he hears, but he's not surprised. And, and, uh, and so that the church is being torn apart by, by strife, by these various groups. And some will look at the problem of divisions in the church and they'll say, ha, huh, I knew it. It's because all you people are always arguing about theology. And so they say, well, we just need to put theology and doctrine aside because doctrine divides people. And let's just, just give me Jesus, Right? Just give me Jesus, and we'll all just get along. But that raises the question, which Jesus, right? Uh, the Jesus of the Mormon church, who is not really divine, or the Jesus of the Jehovah's Witness movement, who, uh, who claimed that Jesus is not the same as the, the Father, or the Jesus of liberal Christianity, that denies that Jesus did the miracles and that there's a difference between the biblical Jesus and the historical Jesus. Which Jesus? That's a pretty important question. So just give me Jesus. You first have to decide which Jesus, which by the way, that's a theological question, isn't it? And so you're immediately, there confronted with a theological problem. So if some people see the problem with that, they say, okay, okay, just give me Jesus, forget that. Just give me the Bible. Let's just agree on the Bible. And, and again, amen, right? Let's just agree on the Bible. But the question becomes, what does the Bible say? You'll hear uh, some people say, you know, we don't need all this doctrine. I just uh, want to uh, believe the Bible. In fact, there's a slogan. Some of you may have heard it. No creed but Christ. No book but the Bible, right? And, uh, and oftentimes, those who will make that claim will say, you know, they'll say, we don't like these doctrinal statements. Particularly you Presbyterians, yours is long, Uh, you know, you've got like three, confession of faith, larger catechism, shorter catechism, I mean, everything's in there. Uh, You know, those things cause division. Let's just not have a creed, let's just agree about the Bible. But then you start to ask questions about, well, what do you believe about baptism or communion or end times? Or some will even get down to which Greek manuscripts you use to translate the Bible because it's gotta be the ones they use in the King James, it's King James only and not New King James. But no creed but Christ, no book but the Bible. What they mean is no written creed. They all have a creed. They all have a creed. Some just haven't bothered to put it down. And, uh, and so it's just not in print. And so, uh, so we see, it seems that discussions about doctrine are, are unavoidable. And, and in fact, it may be even a good thing as we talk about church unity. Even though Paul's pleading for unity of the church in these verses, he would be the first to say the doctrine matters. Uh, Paul is one, Paul is not, oftentimes we'll put the peace of the church versus the purity of the church, and we'll see these two things at odd. Paul says, no, in order for there to be peace in the church, you have to have purity of doctrine. We know this because you read the other letters of the apostle Paul, he's pretty serious about doctrine. Uh, He addresses the doctrinal issues, even in a very strong, forceful, some might even use the word combative manner. Read the book of Galatians. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Uh, You read the book of Romans, where he goes into such great detail. You get into the book of Philippians, where he deals with uh, these these problems. You you deal with uh, Colossians, where he talks about false teachers. Paul is one who will divide over doctrine, and thinks that churches ought to divide over doctrine because false teaching hurts people. And so doctrine matters, doctrine is relevant. Uh, and so, uh, the, the, but the issue becomes uh, while matters of doctrine are important, not all matters of doctrine are the same level of importance. Who is Jesus? That's a pretty essential question. How is a person made right with God? Pretty important question. One that is worth, we would say, dividing over. Critical, but there's a tendency among some Christians to elevate every matter of doctrine to ultimate importance, so that everything, you trace it back far enough, becomes a gospel issue, and if you disagree with me on this doctrine, you don't believe in Jesus almost, you know? And the worst among that, of course, fundamentalist Christians and another group known as Presbyterian and Reformed, uh, who, uh, you know, there's always scrobbles going on in uh, in churches. Baptist Church right now is receiving a lot of press about that. Um, Presbyterians don't divide churches, we divide denominations is how we work, and um, uh, we'll squibble over the squabble over the, the slightest detail and elevate it to a nuclear point. And, uh, and Paul says in verse 10, that as Christians, we should agree. Now, when he says that, he doesn't mean we're going to agree on everything. Literally, he says, we're to speak the same thing. And, and, and uh, that's a classical expression. Uh, that was used in those days to say that you 're to be united. Now Paul is not seeking unison. he doesn 't mean everybody 's going to agree on every detail what he 's seeking here is, is, is harmony. Uh, as, as one commentator put it is uh, we 're to be like a chorus singing from the same page of music, not like a cat 's concert, each howling his or her own caana's tune i can 't say that word. Uh, and uh, you know we 're not like a bunch of screaming cats. And sometimes that's what the church sounds like instead of like a beautiful choir that's all singing in harmony. And so each singing our part. Uh, and so what does that mean for us? Well, as we seek to unity, again, doctrine matters. Uh, doctrine uh, affects how you live. And if it, 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 bad doctrine hurts people, we believe. And yet at the same time, not every doctrine is of the same level of importance and it's why churches ought to seek to work together. Some say, well, that's why I don't want to be a part of a denomination. I'm just going to be a non-denominational church. Well, a non-denominational church, this may come across a bit offensive, but hey, welcome to church, uh, is, uh, is non-denominational church is in a sense a denomination of one. You're not working with anyone else. You're not affiliating with anyone else. By joining a denomination, you can join together church planting, mercy ministries, justice ministries, uh, foreign missions, so on and so forth. And so there ought to be that way to work together. But beyond that, even across denominational lines, uh, the churches ought to look for ways to work together for the good of the gospel and the witness of the church. That's why uh, at Village 7, I know we're so involved in, in Colorado Springs, I love you. Uh, city serve is, is the way we've talked about it here. It's a way we can join together with other gospel-proclaiming churches. Now, we may not agree on everything. And you get, to, uh, get us as pastors in a room, we'll have a fun discussion about lots of topics. And, and we can talk about why you, know, you, know, you don't need a whole tank to baptize somebody uh, in Christ's name. We can talk about uh, end times. We can talk about various issues. Uh, but the witness of Christ uh, is important enough in the city that those who proclaim the gospel can work together. So, And the others we can do is oftentimes Christians are critical about what God is doing instead of rejoicing. I mean, as a church, we ought to praise God for new life's presence in Colorado Springs. I mean, what a vibrant witness that they have in our community and seeing people coming to faith and, and in their service in our community, particularly among the homeless and uh, with Mary's house. Or we can talk about First Presbyterian, where again, we're going to have some, some, even though we're both Presbyterian, different issues, but the impact, uh, good, they're having in our city. Thanking God for the way the gospel is being preached at Vista Grande Baptist a pastor there who loves Jesus deeply and proclaims Jesus faithfully, or Grace Bible Church, or hundreds of other churches in our city. And as Christians, we rejoice that God is at work in these other churches. We rejoice in what God is doing uh, because there ultimately is one church of Jesus Christ. Well, in the case of the Corinthian church, uh, while the different parties probably couch their differences in theological languages because whenever Christians get in an argument, we find a good theological reason for justifying that argument. In reality, the doc- these divisions in the Corinthian church were not doctrinal in their nature. And the reason we know this is Paul does not bother to correct any of their doctrines. He addresses all groups equally, and he does not address any of their doctrinal concerns. And as we've seen in Paul's other letters, if there was a problem of doctrine, Paul would not hold back. He would correct those issues. Instead, what we see here is a problem of what we might call a partisan spirit, that people are in their little tribes and in their little groups. And so we have four different groups that are mentioned here. We have, first of all, uh, the group that says, I'm for Paul. Now you think Paul would like this group, right? Uh, out of the four groups, this is the only one that's on his team, it seems. Uh, Paul is the founding pastor of the church, and so this group probably are the, the group that loyal to Paul who don't like the changes these newcomers have made in the church, and they're hearkening back to the good old days. Another group says, I am of Apollos. Apollos was from Alexandria, Egypt. Alexandria, Egypt was not the Harvard of its day, it was the Oxford or the Cambridge. It was the most elite school in the, uh, in the Mediterranean Sea. And Apollos was known for being highly educated and highly eloquent. And so these people were, were probably the ones saying, oh, finally, an intellectual sermon. Finally, somebody who speaks in a refined way. And we're drawn to that. Uh, the third group says, we're for Cephas. Cephas, by the way, is another name for the apostle Peter, and uh, many commentators suspect that these were were Jewish Christians uh, who were highly legalistic, as we saw in places like Galatians and others, and they probably wanted more separation from the idol-worshiping culture of Corinth. And then the fourth group, of course, is, as Steve noted in his reading, I am of Christ. Now, who's going to argue with these people, right? Oh, you've got Paul, you've got Apollos, you've got Cephas. I'm for Jesus. Team Jesus, that's the team I'm on. And and notice this, as Paul addresses these groups, he corrects all of them. And he singles out even the group that's, that's cheering for him. He corrects all of them uh, for their divisions because... Uh, Peter, Paul, Apollos weren't at odds at each, with each other. In fact, at the end of the book, Paul's gonna call on Apollos to go visit the Corinthians. So he assumes Apollos is going to be saying the same thing. The problem was not with the leaders. The problem was that these people within the church were getting their identity from the leader with whom they were associated. And so our group is better than your group. We're the Apollos group, and we're better than the Paul group or the Cephas group or the, or the Christ group. They're getting their sense of a worth from their group, not from Christ. And in this sense, uh, the church at Corinth was very much like the city of Corinth. The city of Corinth was a a very new city. Uh, It had been reestablished by the Roman Empire and people were moving there from all over the empire. It had great upward mobility. And so the city of Corinth was a city of social climbers. Uh, It was the LA of its day. Some say New York, it's more LA, a little more flash and dash. and. And people always wanting to be in the right group, seen with the right people. And this sort of attitude had infiltrated into the church itself. Of course, we see the same thing in our own society. We are a very status conscious society. We divide the world into us and them. You know, in high school, you remember high school? Some of you remember high school because you're in it. it's uh, you know, you have the the jocks, the nerds, the band people, the gamers, and 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 it's not like there's necessarily a pecking order. It's like you want to be in your group and you don't really care much for the other group. And you get out of high school and you're thinking, thank finally, no more of this click stuff. And then you realize junior high continues for the rest of life. You never get out. You have the same sort of things. Uh you have the uh Uh, The city dwellers who mock the khaki-wearing suburbanites while the working man in his car hearts mocks mocks the latte-sipping hipsters. The elites on the coast look down their nose at those who live and fly over middle America. And those in middle America have nothing but disdain for those wacko Californians and the so-called Hollywood elites. And it seems that every group is looking for a group. Everyone's looking for a group or someone by which to identify themselves so I can say, this is us. This is who we are We are not them. It's a way of separation. C.S. Lewis, I think, diagnoses this quite well uh, in his uh, uh, book, The Weight of Glory, has one of his essays called The Inner Ring. And here's what Lewis says. He says, I believe that in all men's lives at certain periods and in many men's lives at all periods between infancy and extreme old age, one of the most dominant elements is the desire to be inside the local ring and the terror of being left outside. We've all experienced that, not just in high school. And sadly, what Paul is saying, people are experiencing that in the church. They're not in. They're not invited to sit at the table with others. They've got to find their own group, which is different from the other groups. And Paul says, this is not how it ought to be. Uh, In order for there to be an end of the inner ring, Someone has to be out. There has to be a way of distinguishing those who are inside from those who are outside. When we get our worth and our value affirmed from being part of the elite group, however we define that elite group, uh, then we are distinguishing ourselves from those who are not in that group. In other words, it's all rooted, as Lewis points out, it's all rooted in our insecurity, We don't know who we are. We're looking for identity. We're looking for affirmation. We're looking for someone to say we have worth and we have value. And so we look for that in the group. I am a Paul. I am a Peter. I am educated. I don't like those educated snobs. Whatever it may be, we're looking for the group to find our identity that distinguishes ourselves from the others. You're special because you're in this group. Well, that's the problem. Pretty clear. That problem exists in society. Sadly, it exists in the church. So what does Paul, how does Paul address it? Well, look at the key to unity, the key to the unity. Now, interestingly, Paul doesn't say, now children, play nice. Everybody just get along. You know, you know, he probably wants to. <laughs> in some sense, he is saying that, but that's not all he says. Uh, he's not just saying be polite. And I think oftentimes we confuse politeness with with the with the, uh, the the reality of acceptance and loving one another, uh, in other words, you can smile and be friendly and you can say all the right things and still do everything wrong that Paul is talking about. I know this i'm a southerner, so uh, you can you can follow all the rules you can you can follow all the rules and there' still be this sense of you're not one of us, and so Paul's not simply saying be nice. He's saying there's a core problem at, at your the very center of where you're getting your identity, and unless you understand this, you, then then all your politeness is just going to be you know like like you know, <laughs> you know lipstick on a pig, right? Uh, it, it's it's dressing things up, but it's not fixing the root problem. And so Paul responds to the conflict by asking a series of questions that have obvious answers and therefore obvious implications. Look at verse 13. Paul says, is Christ divided? And the obvious answer is what? No. Christ cannot be divided. And so he talks about Christ himself is not divided, but what is the body of Christ? It's the church. And so the church is the body of Christ. The body of Christ, there's just one body of Christ. You can't have a divided body of Christ. If you have a divided body of Christ, you have a dead body of Christ. And so for it to be a living body, he's saying it is not divided. The reality is uh, that there is one Christ and one body of Christ. And so, and, and so all who are in Christ are part of that body. Now, Paul does not say that the body of Christ should not be divided, That's not what he says. He says that the body of Christ is not divided. That's the reality. Uh, And so Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I think, puts it quite well. He said this. He says, Christian community is not an ideal, we have to realize, but rather a reality created by God in Christ in which we may participate what Bonhoeffer's saying is what Paul is saying is, is it's not like saying, you know, we need to be just one body. We need to be unified. Paul's saying, you already are. You are unified. You are one body. The problem is you're not living that way. There is only one body of Christ. And so the unity of the church is not something we create. There's one church, one body. And the problem is we need to live as if there's one body. Now, we too must remember uh, that there's but one church. Uh, we, oftentimes we will use the Apostles' Creed. In the Apostles' Creed, it, we would say, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. When we make that statement, we're not saying we believe in the Roman Catholic Church, that we're submissive to the Pope. Rather, the word Catholic means universal. The statement gives testimony to the reality that despite all appearances, Jesus is not divided. There's one universal body of Christ uh, that extends for all people who are in Christ. And so it is uh, uh, Christ who died for us. And because Christ has died for me, and Christ has died for you, and Christ has died for, for countless people around the globe, we are one. We are united. We are organically, spiritually, truly, in a mystical way, tied in with every other believer in Christ in a union that transcends ideology, that transcends economics, that transcends politics, that transcends race, it even transcends biology. You're a more vital spiritual union with those who are in Christ than you are with those whom share your own blood if they are not in Christ. And so we have this union. Christ died for us. He has brought us into one. We have been baptized into Christ, which means by baptism that symbolizes we've been brought into union with Jesus, which means in union with the church. And so so that's the the reality. Paul says this is the spiritual reality. There's one church, one body, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. We're all united into that one. And and so that is the, uh, the reality. So then he says in verse 10, And he says, based on this, and he gives the basis later, but in verse 10, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree. Again, remember, sing in harmony off the same page. And that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. So he says, because we're one body, we're, we're to move together as one. We're, we're, we are like a team, we may each have our own roles, we may are, have our distinctive personalities, but ultimately we're working together as one, rowing the same direction, uh, on the same mission, on the same cause. We may have different backgrounds, different experiences, different emphases, but we have the same Lord, the same Christ, and one body. And it's in that sense that the church should be a place where people who have nothing else in common, we have no natural reason for associating together, come together as one in love. In other words, it's people with whom you would for no other reason associate, except you're both in Christ. In his book, Jesus Outside the Line, Scott Sauls points out that among Jesus' 12 disciples, there's some pretty serious political divisions. Uh, one of the disciples was known as Simon the Zealot. Now, when it says he's Simon the Zealot, that doesn't mean he's just really, really zealous about things, that Zealot was a political party of sorts. The Zealots were working to overthrow the Roman Empire. That's who he was, he was a revolutionary. Also, one of Jesus' disciples is Matthew the tax collector. Guess who Matthew works for? the government that Simon is trying to overthrow. And these two are at the same table, reclined there with Jesus on on the same team. Now, can you imagine when they got around talking about politics, what Matthew and Simon were talking about? I mean, I imagine even after conversion, one of them probably didn't say, oh, you're right. Now, I imagine they probably had some pretty doggone serious disagreements. And yet they're united there among Jesus' 12 disciples. In fact, we know about their differences in many ways because Matthew's the one who highlights this more than any other gospel writer. And so they're united. They come together in Jesus' inner circle, working together for the kingdom of God, laboring together for the honor of Christ. And yet today, some Christians feel greater loyalty to those who share their political affiliation than they do with those who share their union with Christ. We have more concern for people of our own social class, economic status, ethnicity, nationality, than for those who are joined together with them in the body of Christ. And when we do that, we're forgetting who we are. We're forgetting our core identity. At the core, who you are is you are in Christ. And you're in Christ together with everyone else who is in Christ. Because we're organically united to them, That means you are in the same body with the Christian migrant worker who picked your vegetables in California, or the Christian who's fleeing El Salvador looking for a better life, or the Palestinian Christian brothers and sisters who are struggling to survive in the West Bank, and yes, even the Christian who lives on the left coast is trying to figure out how to integrate his faith in life just like you are. We are one. We are one in Christ. You've been baptized into Christ together with everyone else who's been united to Christ. And the more we get our identity from being in Christ rather than from anything else, the more we'll experience the unity of the body of Christ. That means our connection with Christ and his body comes before all other connections. You're a Christian first, party affiliation second. You're a Christian first, America second. It is our brotherhood in Jesus first, racial, ethnic, social, economic, and everything else second. Because Jesus is Lord, not Caesar, not anyone else, that our loyalty to him and his bride must reign over everything else. And that's why we come to the Lord's table. The Lord's table is not simply about you communing with Jesus. Later on, in the same book, in chapter 10, the Apostle Paul is going to point out that when we eat of the table When we eat of the bread, we're all partaking of the same loaf. We're all sharing in the same loaf. We're drinking from the same cup, symbolizing that we are all one in Christ. Even as you're eating the bread and drinking the cup this morning, people all over the city are doing the same thing. They're your brothers and sisters. People all over the world are doing the same thing. You're united to them. We share in one body, one Lord, And so as we come to the Lord's table, let's pray that God gives us a heart for his church, that we might have a vibrant witness to his world as we unite together. As I pray, I'm going to lead us in a time of confession, but as I do so, I'm also going to invite the servers to go ahead and begin making their way forward as we engage in this time of prayer and this time of confession. Join with me as we pray. Our Lord, we come before you. And it's very easy for us in a theological sense to talk about there's one church. Many of us could teach whole classes on the universality of the church. We can talk about the church visible and invisible, the church universal, the church particular. We can talk about what you're doing in bringing the nations together. And yet, oh Lord, we confess we confess even as we long to see the nations come to you that sometimes we have a hard time relating th- to those who sit right next to us or to those in our own city who share our same faith our same lord so lord we confess to you our partisan spirit we confess that for some of us we come on sunday mornings and and we begin to judge others by our standards, the not our standards of Christ, but our standards of our own uh, preferences and our standards of, of things that we have elevated that are maybe even good, but we've elevated to being supreme. Forgive us for judging those who are different from us, different economically, different culturally, different socially. Forgive us for judging those who who may differ from us in non-essential areas of theology for thinking they are inferior in the body of Christ and that we are the ones who have it together. Forgive us, O Lord, of that sort of arrogance. Forgive us for, for not cheering for the best in your kingdom broadly, for not longing to see the gospel flourish in churches that are different from our own. Forgive us for for being like these people and saying, we are of this party rather than we belong to you and therefore we belong to one another. Oh Lord, may we as a church be unified here at Village 7 and unified with the brothers and sisters in our city as we seek to, to see our city reach with the gospel of Jesus Christ. May we also have unity with our brothers and sisters throughout the world As we seek to take the gospel to the nations, it certainly won't be us alone who are taking that good news. It won't be Presbyterians alone. It won't be Reformed people alone. Lord, it takes the whole body of Christ. And so we pray, unite us for the sake of mission, for the sake of your glory, and for the sake of your good name. And Lord, we thank you that you've died to bring us into the body of Christ. And by doing so, you've died to forgive us of all our sins, even our sins of partisanship, even our sins of arrogance, even our sins of divisiveness, even our sins of stirring up dissension. Thank you, O Lord, for giving us for those things. And may we live for your glory, even as we come to the table today. Amen.